Hi there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. I'm coming down off the high from When Words Collide, a convention in Calgary that uh, we were supposed to attend in person, only for obvious reasons. Uh, we did not, and but they managed to turn the whole thing into an online version, which I have to say was incredibly successful. I mean, does it does it beat being there in person and networking and meeting people and Barcon and all that? Of course, I miss all of that personal interactive stuff, but the quality of the presentations and the the all the things I come away with, it was it was as good as any con I've ever been to. So well done, Randy McCharles and the entire When Words Collide team. Something that uh, came up in one of the panels I, I virtually attended on Sunday is the phrase, if you don't ask, you don't get. And I absolutely have to talk about this. This is something that I think applies to everybody in life. So listen or don't. If you wish to skip ahead, go to about 7.25. If you don't ask, you don't get. Okay, so when at, at the end of my third year of university, I was part of a touring group called the Canadian Youth Ambassadors for Peace. So there was it was a large group. I'm going to say 30 or 40 people. I'd have to go look at photos and count. Um, a whole bunch of really young people and a few of us of university age and a few, we'll call them adults for the sake of argument because they were the quote-unquote grown-ups <laughs> in the room. <clears throat> um, and we... We had this, I won't go into what the show was like, but um, the, the star of the show was uh, Canadian singer-songwriter Anne Mortifee, um, of, of whom I've always had a, a great deal of respect and admiration. So we performed the show in Victoria prior to going away. And there was one segment of the show where Anne Mortifee sings Perhaps Love, which you may know uh, it was recorded by John Denver and Julio Iglesias. So it was Anne Mortifee and this gentleman whose name eludes me. They sang the song. It was beautiful harmony and everything for the performance in Victoria before we went on tour. And it was on the flight from Helsinki to Moscow that I overheard the directors talking about how the gentleman who had sung the duet with Anne wasn't on the tour with us. And so they were going to have to cut the song because there was nobody to sing it. Now, I played the Dove of Peace. And so, to my mind, hey, perfectly reasonable that I could sing this song with Anne Mortifee. And I sat there in my seat on the plane going, okay, guys, notice me. Notice me. Come on. I'm right here. Come on. You can think of this. You know. You know that I could do this. And I finally, uh, the penny dropped and I went, they're not going to think of this unless I point it out to them. So now I'm going to step back a little bit and tell you that in my childhood, 
I was taught by my parents to not ask for things. Now, I, I get what they were doing. I get that they didn't want me in the grocery store saying, I want that toy, I want that candy, you know, throwing temper tantrums or, or anything like that. I was taught that you don't ask for stuff. You wait until you're offered. Now you can see where this is going, right? So that, that lesson was so ingrained that there I was on a plane from Helsinki to Moscow at age, I don't know, 20, realizing that they're not going to think of this and offer it to me. If I want to do this, I have to take charge. So I got up and I did probably one of the scariest things I've ever done. At least the, the first, <laughs> probably the first of many very scary things. But I said to them, hey, I could sing it. I could sing Perhaps Love with Anne. And they looked at each other and went, yeah, that's a great idea. You think you can handle the harmony? And I'm like, yes, I can sing the harmony. So yes, absolutely. I got this. And so when we got to our hotel in Moscow, we went to a little rehearsal room and we rehearsed it and it was brilliant. And I sang Perhaps Love with Anne Mortify at all the performances around the Soviet Union. So that's a lesson that I have to keep reminding myself because that, that don't ask for stuff, that was the harder thing to, to quash to this day. I have to keep reminding myself that if I don't ask for it, I can't expect other people to think of it and offer it to me. Um, so I have come out of when words collide with this, well, let's say it's a, it's a reminder of a need to be bolder, to make a plan and to do it and not expect that other people are going to just offer me stuff. It doesn't mean being rude or impolite. I mean, the, the, the philosophy behind my parents' lesson, if you will, is still rings true. Like, don't be a jerk. <laughs> don't, don't be rude. But definitely know what you want and know what you need and take steps to make it happen. Don't expect stuff to come to you because somebody else has thought of it. It's got to come from you. And that has taken me a really long time to learn. Thank you for listening. I was just bursting with a need to share that story. So thank you for listening. And now back to our regularly scheduled program. This is Chapter 16. Gatekeeper's Key by Krista Wallace. Chapter 16. Revelations. Wait a minute. Don't lift it yet. Juskelin put a hand on Derry's arm just as the captain was about to remove the pot of water from the fire. Derry withdrew his hand and watched the mage's eyes, bright with excitement as he tried to retrieve some distant memory. Juskelin wafted the steam toward himself, breathing it in. 
Derry had spent the last hour like an alchemist's apprentice, helping the mage pour portions of water, adding herbs and powders, stirring, sniffing, even tasting. He was tired, and his stomach was nagging at him for sustenance. More than anything, the strain of worry had gripped every muscle in his body with sharp talons, and he wondered how long they would carry on with this futile exercise. Now a sudden hope was renewed at Jaskelin's outburst, and his heart rushed the blood through his body with regained fervor. "'Yes,' the mage said. "'I think that's it.' "'What's it?' "'It nearly escaped me because I couldn't identify the smell. "'But then I remembered a brief warning by one instructor I had long ago. "'The steam has a bitter, almost metallic aroma, "'which leads me to believe there is amarin present in the water.' "'Derry had heard of it, but didn't know its properties. "'Juskelin explained. "'On its own, it would merely dull the judgment, "'similarly to alcohol, though more intense.' but added to that as a hint of, he squinted in thought, cinnamony basil, which I believe is pequil. It would intensify the results of the amarin, I am certain of it. This could account for the villagers' state of belief and acceptance of simple statements they would normally discount. This mixture would, I fear, make one quite susceptible to outside influence. The power of suggestion would become very strong. "'Which is certainly what we're dealing with here, taken to the extreme,' Derry said. But a nagging doubt remained. "'The one thing that bothers me is that doesn't account for the dulling of emotions, the lack of fear or concern about what is happening.' <sighs> the mage agreed. "'All I can think is that there must be still another substance working on them, from another source, perhaps,' Derry frowned, dismayed by the implications." That could very well be, Jaskelin's nose wrinkled, another drug or concoction with the effect of an antidepressant, something that removes concern, that makes the victim feel as if all is right with the world. It's quite possible, and very clever. How do we find out what it is? Derry replaced herbs and fungi to their respective pouches. And in the meantime... We know to avoid the well water, but what else do we avoid so that we don't fall victim to this mess? Jaskelin met his gaze. Good question. The best we can do, Derry sighed and rubbed the back of his neck, just eat or drink nothing that we didn't bring ourselves for now. Jaskelin stared at the experiment area, littered with pouches and vials, tweezers and tongs. What do we do at this point? We cover the well, for one thing. Derry said, and we'll set a watch. His attention was diverted by the sight of a small child running toward them. My name is Sasha, she said breathlessly. Kier sent me to you. Are you really the Duke's best friend? The magistrate's wife opened the door to the handsome young Duke. He brushed past her into the front room, where Emma rocked gently and her father sang to her. New instructions, Dylan, the Duke said briskly. The magistrate ambled to his feet. How may I serve your lordship? Kill the strangers at dawn. Janik waited several trees away while Fennel slid stealthily toward the stone building. The front door was ajar, and pushing it open, the elf found himself in a dark closet-sized entryway, a cloakroom perhaps. With his ear to the inner door, Fennel could make out several voices, and thought perhaps the two of them would be unwise to pursue this on their own. 
He soundlessly waved Janik to stay back and slunk out to make an equally stealthy retreat. All at once he heard Janik cry out and whirled around to see two men rushing toward him. They had seen Fennel at the same time as the dwarf had seen them returning to the temple. Janik had already snatched his battle-axe from its hanger and attacked. Fennel drew his sword. Hearing the commotion, four other men piled out of the building and entered the fray. Fennel dashed around a tree to get closer to Janik and to keep their opponents from surrounding them. Cursing their ill luck and timing, Fennel fought back the desire to turn tail. He wasn't useless with his sword, his elven agility gave him a bit of an advantage, but with three to one odds his energy might flag before his opponents, and with Janik's poor eye, Fennel did not like their chances. A clip on his right arm was turned by his chainmail, and as he ducked to avoid a blade to the neck, he said to himself, I hope Kier thinks to come back before we're dead. Kier pelted through the trees, keeping her body low. She darted from tree to tree to avoid exposing herself before she could size up the situation, how many opponents, how best to use her advantage. She watched Janik's first swing miss, his monocular vision troubling him. At the same time, Fennel caught a blade in the shoulder and was knocked sideways and slammed into a tree. Then Janik's axe made contact with the top of a head with a horrible crunch. The fellow never had a chance to give a dying murmur. Kier drew her sword and steadied her breathing. Surrounded by three men, the half-blind Janik had taken to spinning in a counterclockwise direction, his axe blade shearing through the air with a whistling sound. The elf confounded his opponents by shinnying up the tree as nimbly as a squirrel in spite of the dark trickle down his arm. When one challenger tried to follow, Fennel made easy work of slamming his sword onto the head as it rose, and Kier silently cheered. He stabbed the blade into a branch of the tree and drew his bow. Janik's enemies had backed off to a safer distance and were making ready to strike if the dwarf should become dizzy. Mere seconds after her arrival, Kier chose her man and stepped into the clearing, poking at his legs to get his attention. He whirled about to see the newcomer, and his face went pale with surprise. Sword clenched with both hands, Kier stepped up to him and brought her sword down with a cracking thud onto his shoulder, more bones splintered as she twisted it free. Janik made a sudden jump, flipping his axe over to the other side and began to unwind, this time sweeping it up and down, making it difficult for them to get in closer. One man backed away from the blade, unaware of what was behind him. Kier tapped him on the shoulder. He turned and gasped. "'Hello,' she said evenly, raising her weapon. A feint to his sword arm, along with the element of surprise, threw him off balance. He put in a vain effort to get back in line and took a swipe at her, but she easily blocked him, and his weapon was still down when she raised hers and cleaved his midriff. He fell with a gurgling cry. All sound ceased. The clearing had taken on an eerie darkness as the cloudy mid-afternoon light tried to dodge the trees. Kier wiped her blade and sheathed it. All at once she felt the unmistakable sensation of eyes boring into her back. She wheeled around. Peering into the shadows, hand on her hilt, she stepped cautiously forward. Someone is there. Kier! Janik's voice from behind her. Startled, she whirled again to see the dwarf standing beneath a tree on the far side of the clearing. Fennel's semi-conscious form was draped over a branch. Six bodies lay around the clearing. With one more backward glance into the shadows, Kier shuddered as the presence seemed to fade. Recovering herself, she hastened over to help the dwarf. Fennel's blood plopped drop by drop onto the face of a dead man below, whose neck was pierced with one of Fennel's arrows. 
Kier shinnied up the tree, ignoring the uncomfortable stretching and chafing in her back. A six-point shuriken was deeply embedded in the elf's left shoulder, pinning links of chainmail into his flesh. Knees clutching her own branch, she gently dislodged the elf from his perch and let him slowly tumble down to Janik, who barely slumped under his weight. When she joined them on the forest floor, Kier removed the throwing star and bound the wound with a sleeve off one of the dead men. Janik put Fennel's sword through his belt and slung the bow across his back. Then together they hoisted the elf onto their shoulders. Kier looked once more into the darkness on the far side of the clearing. She saw no one, but she knew someone was there. They were halfway up the hill when Derry met them. He had asked Sasha a few pertinent questions about what was happening and where, and left her with Jaskelin. He took a portion of their burden, and they raced to the inn. "'There's someone else down there,' Kier said. "'We've got to find out who it is.' "'They will have to wait,' Derry said. Jaskelin followed with the last of the pots, and Sasha carried Derry's kit. Concerned that the sight of the injury would be frightening for her, Derry sent Sasha upstairs to fetch blankets.' Kier and Janik laid the elf on a bench. Derry knelt next to him to examine the wound. "'Who is the child?' Derry asked, peeling off Fennel's mail. "'We went looking for Carver,' Kier said. "'We found him all right, half falling off a chair in his own front room with a knife through his throat.' Derry swore under his breath. "'I hate the people who did this, Derry. All of this.' Her voice sounded detached. If I ever figure out who's behind it, I will kill him. The captain halted his procedure and glared at her. You will do nothing of the kind. I bloody well... No, Derry said harshly. You think you feel angry about it? What about Valraker? These are his people. These crimes are in Valraker's jurisdiction, and Valraker is the one who will pass judgment. If we discover those responsible, we will take them to him. Do you understand me? Kier's chest heaved, and she didn't speak. Her gaze was locked on some point beyond his elbow, and he wondered what she saw. Kier! Derry grabbed her shoulder until she met his eyes. Promise me you will not take this into your own hands. Promise! Kier's eyes were as dark as the woods. She shrugged off his hand, and he released it. All right, she said. I promise. He turned back to his task. Will you please go get some water? She still sounded remote. I'll have to go to the stream. She went out. Derry looked over his shoulder to where Janik still stood next to him. The last thing he wanted to hear was a comment from Janik right now. He redirected the dwarf's attention to Fennel. What happened here? Six men in the woods, Janik said. The wee one told us they were there, and we took them by surprise. Did you take care of them all? All that were there. Too bad you didn't keep one alive for questioning. It was over rather quick. Any idea who they were? None, said the dwarf. Duke Hunter proceeded cautiously back down the hillside to the woods where Ronav had taken possession of the temple and the cleric's little cottage. Nobody had seen him, he was sure. There would have been some form of reaction— he hefted the coiled rope that was slung on his shoulder. It was true that he had no wish to be seen by Valraker's party, not that he was afraid of an encounter with one of them. Of course not, although that would bring on its own set of complications. No, it was more that he felt like an outsider being so new to Ronav's company. 
This experiment in Nenya, though clever and having great potential for use in other villages and towns, was Ronav's baby. Hunter didn't feel like fighting Valraker's people in its defense. He passed the temple and tripped over something in the clearing. Squinting through the dim light, he discovered the first body. As his eyes adjusted, he peered around. Several more. Had they got everybody? He shook his head in disbelief. Proceeding to the stone house in the gloom of the trees, he flung open the door, half expecting the place to be empty. Ronav sat up, and Hunter was impressed by the casual greeting. If the chief had been shaken by what had happened outside, he gave no sign. Well? What happened here? Hunter shrugged the rope off his shoulder onto the floor. Ronav poured himself a tumbler of liquor with a steady hand. Someone told them we were here. A few of Valraker's people paid a visit. But not to you, Hunter said. Ronav waved a hand dismissively. I have other men. I am needed to see the task through. And yourself? I have done my part. It is in motion. Excellent. Ronav smiled with satisfaction. I'd like you to return to headquarters and get some replacements for those lowlifes. Bring along Misty and Juggler if they have returned from their errand. Suits me. I prefer to let you bask in the glory of your own success, Hunter said dryly. I will leave immediately. I don't want to be caught up in the excitement of the morning. The heavy clouds that had surrounded the village all day descended to nestle in among the dilapidated dwellings, and evening fell hard. Kier felt the fog without and within. Its damp chilled her soul. Some villagers were milling about the still-uncovered well, and she rushed over. No! She pushed them away with very little resistance. A pregnant woman already had a bucket full, and Kier dumped it out. I'm sorry, but the well's off limits until further notice. You'll have to go down to the stream. There were half-hearted mumbles of protest, but she steered each person away with a small push. Off you go, down the hill to the river. She cut the bucket from the well's winch with her dagger. That would confound them. On her way to the stream, she paused at the top of the hill and gazed down into the murk that concealed the woods. Someone was there. Promise or no promise, she would find out. The fog settled deeper, without and within. Derry cleaned out the mess that was Fennel's shoulder using water from a flask. What's taking her so long? He reminded himself that Kier would have to go all the way down the far bank to the stream and back. Can I help? The girl's quiet voice startled Derry out of his frustration. She held out a blanket and pillow. He smiled at her and held up Fennel's head so she could thrust the pillow beneath it. He had been unnecessarily concerned about shielding her from the sight of Fennel's wounds. She proved to be an asset. As she handed him items from his kit or dabbed blood that seeped out, he was reminded of an earlier time in his life. He cast aside those mixed emotions with a shake of his head. Here. Janet crouched beside him with a bottle in hand. Found some liquor behind the bar. Thought it might be useful. Once the worst was over, Derry poured some of it into Fennel. The elf coughed and gasped. Lie still, you fool. I can't see what I'm doing, said Derry. Finally the door opened, and Kier walked in, weighed down by the full pail. At last, Derry said. She didn't speed up. Don't hurry or anything. Okay. She ambled over and put the bucket down, either missing or ignoring his sarcasm. I'm going back out to cover the well. Derry glared at her back, feeling frustrated, isolated. 
Earlier in the day she had been so impassioned, now she seemed to have detached herself. He hoped she'd snap out of it soon. Things were not quite right when Kierre wasn't herself. A glance showed him that Janik, too, was glaring after her. Derry was too tired to deal with him. He wished the dwarf would cut it out. Or at least he hoped Kierre was unaware of his scrutiny. All he needed was for those two to break into yet another fight. "'Weren't there some dead people to take care of?' Derry said, startling Janik. The dwarf harumphed. "'Yeah. Come on, Jaskelin. Each with a lantern, they slipped out into the murk. In spite of the presence of the child, Derry was alone again. Kier absently covered the well with boards from the platform. She went back inside and ate some food. When Sasha's head began to nod, Kier took her to the room she had prepared for Emma. Sasha curled up on the bed and Kier closed the shutters she'd left open hours before. The mist's fingers had crept in and touched everything in the room with their cold dampness. The tendrils curled into Kier's heart. One warm spot was impenetrable, that place where her feelings for Sasha and her father resided. But the tiny spot where those responsible lurked, that spot was numbed like frostbite. Her bedroll was dry and she unfolded it to spread across the both of them. Kier was asleep too soon to know whether Sasha tossed and turned or not. She was completely unaware when the child left the room shortly before dawn and did not return for half an hour. A second poison. Consumed by that conundrum, Derry had slept badly. His body felt so tired he didn't even notice the hard floor beneath him, but the eventful day hadn't been a strong enough soporific. Jaskelin knew of no antidote for the herbal cocktail and surmised that the effect would simply have to wear off, nor had the mage any idea of how else the concoction might have affected the general health of the villagers. They might be ill for years to come. All Derry could hope for was that even after continual absorption of tainted water for so many months, the poison might be flushed out by drinking large quantities of fresh water from the stream. There was no telling how long that would take, especially considering that there had to be a second ingredient involved in the full treatment. Now, at the pale, diffuse sunrise, the idea of the water seemed obvious, and he could think of nothing else that made as much sense. "'We must have missed something in the water, that's all,' he thought, dejected. Since he was awake anyway, he might as well go for a walk and see if anything came to him. Yesterday his walk had carried him to the Circle of Divinity, as he had come to think of it. He would go there again. There was no guessing the hour, for the fog was still densely packed around them. The mist clung to his hair and weeks' growth of beard. He pulled his cloak around him against the chill and walked more briskly. The village still slept, and his footfalls sounded thunderously loud. Reaching the top of the hill, he let his gaze rest on the woods down below, where the battle had taken place yesterday, and a lump rose in his throat. "'At least we've stopped them from hurting any more innocent people,' he told himself. Still, it had to have been many months since the poison was introduced, and he mourned the villagers' loss of so much of their lives. He despised the men who had brought it about, and felt grim, unchivalrous satisfaction that they'd paid with the balance of their own lives. It had pained him to let Sasha help with Fennel last night. He wouldn't have dreamed of turning down her offer to help. She needed companionship more than anything right now. Her bright eyes and eager grin brought back more than one memory that ought to have been happy, but were accompanied by too much sorrow. 
for Sasha reminded him dreadfully of his own beloved sisters, Amber and Lily. Childhood was happy, and as he grew up, both girls had looked up to their brother as an important figure, a young man about to enter the service of Lord Valraker. Lily, the smallest, was ten years younger than he, and had the same playful spirit and eagerness to learn as little Sasha. Amber had been more serious like himself, yet was able to keep Lily from feeling disheartened when Derry's duties prevented his coming home as frequently as he would have liked. The two girls played music and sang together and had always brought joy to the home. He had tried to persuade his family to move into the city so he could be closer to them, but they had refused, saying it would be nicer for Derry to take a sojourn into the country during his leave. Besides, his father was the miller and did a good business. What did Eckert City need with another miller? About a year after he joined the Eckert Guard, Derry was looking forward to some days off to visit his family. A messenger arrived at Eckert Castle to tell Derry there had been an epidemic in his family's village. Most of the village was wiped out. Derry's mother and father were dead, and there was no word about Amber and Lily. He rushed to the village to inquire after them, but no one knew what had become of them. He hadn't seen or heard of his sisters in six years. If they were still alive, they would be eighteen and sixteen years old. He heard the echo of their singing as he stood on the mist-dampened hillside. Nenya was much like his boyhood home, and the affliction of this village was all too similar to the pestilence that had obliterated his family. There had been nothing he could do to prevent their deaths. Of course, if anyone dies here, he told himself, it's murder. Here, at least, if he were clever enough, he might forestall further loss of life, if he could solve the final puzzle. <sighs> with a deep breath, he stepped within the circle of divinity. He closed his eyes and begged the cold, lifeless figures of stone to offer him guidance. Again the world took on a strange, light hush. He waited. But maybe it was too cold. Maybe it was too wet, or too early in the day. They were still, mute, silent as death. An ache of despondency flowed with Derry's blood soaking into him like the mist. He had been foolish to think that they had spoken to him. It was as he had thought all along. The water idea had come from his own knowledge and experience, that was all. Yet he turned back to Dion and stared at her. What had he noticed yesterday? Her feet poised to leap. He looked around at the others. All of their feet were hidden by overgrown grasses. The weeds surrounding Dion had been ripped off. The faintest glimmer of hope sparked deep down under his dejection. He looked around from one statue to the next, his feet shifting, rotating his body in the center of the circle. He turned once. Nothing. He turned a second time, frowning with concern. He began a third rotation and started to lose heart. He had moved on to the figure of Theris when something jolted in his brain. Turning back, he wondered that he had not seen it before, that he had not noticed it yesterday even. Aden, the goddess of life and fertility, held the spirarus in one hand, and in the other she cradled a sheaf of wheat. A sheaf of wheat that was incongruous to the rest of the statue, to all the statues. Dirt, Derry whispered. The deep blackness of every other figure was untarnished by dust and speckled only by the last fall of rain, but the sheaf in Aden's arm was topped by a sprinkling of fresh, dark dirt like cinnamon on top of a cake. Now what did it mean? Did it mean anything? It had to. Then Derry, the miller's son, felt the dawn. 
from wheat comes flour and apart from water the other staple of a villager's diet was bread there was no mill in nenya it was coming from outside if the poison were a powder it would be no difficult task to add it to the wheat during milling so it would already be present before the flour was put into sacks and delivered wherever it was coming from the miller must have struck a bargain with someone he raced back to the inn several villagers stood around the platform in the centre of the square and derry wondered in passing why they would be out and about so early in such weather he burst through the door of the inn to see janet thrusting a hunk of bread into his mouth where did you get that my pack where'd you think the dwarf said through the bread and a good many more crumbs found themselves nesting in his beard <sighs> the other poison it's in the flour derry said catching his breath good thinking derry said fennel who apart from his bound shoulder was back to normal this morning i feel like we ought to have thought of that kier added well we won't know for certain until i can check it i'm not sure how to do that any ideas Diskellen? the mage was about to answer when some voices outside turned all their heads there was a fumbling and a pounding on the door and emma burst through water dripping from under her dress forming an expanding pool she clutched her belly groaning help me she cried in a panic-stricken whimper chairs tipped over as they all flew to their feet by the goddess the baby jeskelin cried derry rushed to her fighting his fear as if he were attacking an orc supporting her under the arms the physiker adept assisted her to the chair that kier drew out this was a healer's job not his desperately banishing the frenzy of terrifying pictures of complicated childbirths he pulled himself together i need clean cloths blankets pillows and damn it water he coaxed emma to the front edge of the chair and looked over his shoulder for the pail sasha brought it over it was half empty sasha you'd better go upstairs to your room somebody get me more water fennel tucked a pillow behind emma's back and janet spread a blanket on the floor a horrifying sound began to rise in emma's throat is somebody getting water derry yelled then he heard what had already stopped the others in their tracks the yelling from outside in the square was building in an alarming way jeskelin opened the door by the wolf spirit he whispered fennel joined him at the door that looks way too much like yesterday death to the strangers a voice cried with rage the roar of the approaching crowd all but drowned out the sound of emma's scream of pain bring your weapons jeskelin cried there was a flurry of movement all around him as derry tried to hold emma's attention breathe with me he demanded in a hoarse whisper and he made his breath steady the pounding on the door distracted him captain derry looked up and was startled at the alarm in jeskelin's eyes the mage was leaning pressing his body against the door we have to get to the bell jeskelin said these people don't know what they're doing we must try not to harm them but they're trying to kill us derry thought emma's fingers pinched derry's forearms as she growled the captain's gaze went from the sweat on emma's forehead back to his company fennel was wrestling to get his mail on over his wounded shoulder with help from a worried-looking kier whose colorfully bruised face was still pinched with pain from the hell she had gone through only days before jannick battle-axe in hand stared at derry out of only one good eye one strange girl and her baby versus his entire company all they had to do was ring the bell 
what would Dunvarin do? It all seemed impossible. Emma's frightened eyes were no longer focused as Derry pulled away from her and stood up. He felt a twisting in his gut, but grabbed his weapon and put her out of his mind. I know, I'm sorry to cut off right in the middle of a very tough scene. Tune in next week for the second to last chapter of Gatekeeper's Key, and trust me, book two is on the way, Gatekeeper's Deception is in the final editing phases, and I'm very, very excited about reading it aloud to you. And stick around uh, in between novels. I'm going to introduce you to some cool people. I have always wanted to include chats and so forth, um, and maybe some short fiction. Um, Book two will appear by the end of September. Another cool thing that happened right towards the end of When Words Collide was uh, the final panel I was at was turning goals into reality. And and there was a lot of audience participation in the chat where uh, Susie Vidori, the presenter was asking us to write in the chat what a five-star review of your book looks like. And so people were putting all kinds of stuff like depth of character. I love this book. I was hooked. I couldn't put it down. All kinds of stuff like that. And then she asked us to put in what a one-star review looks like. And of course, everybody was like, my book is shite or shallow characters. The story is boring and not believable and stuff like that. And in the middle of this conversation, I happened to check Twitter. I was It's not like I wasn't engaged in the presentation. Don't worry. I happened to check Twitter and <laughs> this comment came up from a listener, listener Moss, saying... I'm really enjoying your podcast, and I can't wait to go back to the beginning and marathon it. (laughs) And and so I was then able to plug that into the chat in this presentation and say, I literally just got this tweet. So the presenter read it out loud, and and, uh, it was really funny, and I found myself getting all teary. Like, oh my god, they were just talking about getting positive reviews, and uh, that was... That was awesome. Well-timed, Moss. Matt and I are celebrating our 30th wedding anniversary this week. Happy anniversary, my love. Thank you so much to you for everything. Thanks to David and Heather and Maggie. Thank you, David and Sharon. Thanks to the original six. And thank you so much to you, the listeners. Take care of yourselves. Be kind, be calm, be safe. Now go be fantastic.